Hail and welcome to A Satanist Reads the Bible, exploring the Bible, Christianity, and other religions in their sacred texts through the lens of Satanism in order to reinvent religion for myself. You know, for a blog and a podcast called A Satanist Reads the Bible, I haven't done much actual reading of the Bible as of late, or of any sacred text, so this week I'm getting back to my bread and butter. My first essay on Islam, A Satanist Reads the Quran, was one of my most read and most positively received writings, and it seems that the Muslim community in particular was especially favorable towards it. Certainly not universally. I got responses from, I think, more conservative Islamic voices that had dismissed the entire thing out of hand without even reading it, but what positive reception it did get among Muslims was wonderful and also quite surprising to me. Even though I hold the Quran in very high esteem, I don't accept its central thesis of being the literal word of God, and I expected that this, and, and the whole Satanism angle, would lead to some enmity towards me and my work. That does not at all seem to have been the case. So this week I return to the topic of the Quran and explore what I find to be one of the strangest things about it, which is the contrast between Islam as it is commonly understood, as a very aggressively exclusivist religion, and what the Quran actually says. As usual, and this is one of the major recurring themes in my work, it seems that what people say of a given sacred text, in this case the Quran, and what the text itself actually says, are two very different things. So I'll get to that in a few minutes, but first up, music and books. I'll be briefer about these things than I was in the last episode because I've got more to read this week. Last week was a very short essay, this week's is much more my usual length. If you enjoy my work, please like and subscribe and tell your friends, stop by asatanistreadsthebible.com and leave a comment on this week's essay, and if you find it informative and entertaining, I encourage you to visit my Patreon page, which you can get to from my blog, and consider signing up. I've got some great benefits for my patrons, and you can also support my work by clicking through the book links in my essays on the blog and buying some books. You can also sign up for my mailing list so you can keep abreast of all the latest Satanist Reads the Bible news. My album of the week for this episode is the new EP from Suffering Hour, Dwell. Suffering Hour's debut album, In Passing Ascension, was one of my favorite albums from 2017. I'd describe it as a very death metal take on Death Spell Omega-style dissonant black metal. The songwriting is outstanding, the guitar work is exceptional, and the whole thing is just a huge amount of fun. Well, they've released a new EP, Dwell, which is just a single 18-minute song, and it's every bit as good as their full length. What's especially cool is that, for such a long song, it's not just a collection of ideas strung together, but a fully integrated, functional song, and a fantastic one at that. Great riffs, great atmosphere, hit it up on Bandcamp and grab yourself a download. On to the book of the week. I'll be talking about this one a bit in the essay, but I'll mention it here as well. The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order by Samuel P. Huntington. This came out in 1996 and offered a model for analyzing geopolitics based not on the state, but rather on the civilization. Huntington describes nine such civilizations. The West, Latin America, Africa, the Islamic civilization, the Cynic Chinese civilization, the Hindu civilization, the Orthodox civilization, Russia and many former Soviet states, the Buddhist civilization, Mongolia, Tibet, parts of South Asia, and the Japanese civilization, uh, with a caveat that Africa isn't described properly as a civilization in Huntington's book because it's still very fragmented, uh, but it is still analyzed and grouped in those terms. 
Differences and struggles between these different civilizations drive global conflict, which tends to accumulate around what Huntington calls the fault lines between civilizations. I've just taken a survey of the book and haven't covered very much in terms of deep reading, and I'm not sure I'm going to agree with everything it says, but it's an interesting and I think very potentially useful way of looking at the world. On to this week's essay, Pluralism in the Quran. I think that Samuel Huntington is right, and that the West and the Islamic world are in the midst of a clash of civilizations that has been ongoing for centuries. In his book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order, Huntington attributes this to irreconcilable differences between the two civilizations' respective religions. Quoting here, The causes of this ongoing pattern of conflict lie not in transitory phenomena such as 12th century Christian passion or 20th century Muslim fundamentalism. They flow from the nature of the two religions and the civilizations based on them. Conflict was, on the one hand, a product of difference, particularly the Muslim concept of Islam as a way of life transcending and uniting religion and politics versus the Western Christian concept of the separate realms of God and Caesar. The conflict also stemmed, however, from their similarities. Both are monotheistic religions, which, unlike polytheistic ones, cannot easily assimilate additional deities, and which see the world in dualistic, us and them terms. Both are universalistic, claiming to be the one true faith to which all humans can adhere. Both are missionary religions, believing that their adherents have an obligation to convert non-believers to that one true faith. End of quote. There's more, but I think this states the overall point well enough. Except, I don't think that it's entirely true when it comes to Islam. Huntington is coming from a realist perspective, which means that he's interested primarily in how these religions function in the real world and not on their theoretical and theological underpinnings. And within that context, he is entirely correct. Huntington accurately describes the real-world functional behaviors of the two cultures. But I don't think that's what Islam really is. I don't think that that's what the Quran says that Islam is, and that's the source I take to be most authoritative in this matter. I recommend reading my previous essay on Islam, A Satanist Reads the Quran, as background for what follows. And unfortunately, that one's not up as a podcast yet, and probably won't be for a few months at least, so that would be your only recourse. But failing that, I'll just say that the Quran, the sacred text of Islam, believed to be the received word of God and the only sacred text I know of that makes that claim with regards to its whole being, is one of the world's great works of literary genius. Indeed, part of its claim to divinity involves its incomparable literary qualities. Even in translation, reading it is like staring into the sun, almost intolerably intense. I don't fully accept its central thesis, that it is the true and absolute word of God, but I can't overstate its brilliance. I use Halim's translation, and also I highly recommend Ziauddin Sardar's Reading the Quran as Secondary Literature. And in the essay version of this, you'll find links to both of those uh, to uh, their pages on Amazon where you can purchase those. The Quran is also a challenging text to interpret, though not insurmountably so by any measure. In fact, I think that its interpretation is easily available to anyone willing to put in some effort, and Sardar supports me in this. Given that this is a text in which a primary narrator— ostensibly God, is narrating to Muhammad what he is to say to his followers, and that those instructions also include quotes, the language can become quite convoluted. There's also a matter of the historical context to consider. Different verses were revealed to Muhammad at different stages of his life. 
The early Muslim community found itself in various different circumstances during these different periods, and the verses revealed must be understood and interpreted in those contexts. And I'll mention again that the translation of the Quran is a contentious issue. This is a text that was originally revealed in Arabic, so those Muslims for whom Arabic is a native language have an advantage over others as far as matters of religion are concerned. There has been debate over the centuries as to whether this text should ever be translated at all, or whether it simply be expected that everyone learn Arabic so as to hear the word of God. Forbidding its translation would certainly benefit native Arabic speakers and the elite few who are able to garner an education sufficient to authoritatively interpret Quranic Arabic. I tend to be wary of such relegation of matters of interpretation to an elite few, but I also don't know any Arabic beyond a few words and phrases, so I am left to interpret the Quran in translation for better or worse. I doubt very much, however, that God would have made such an important statement in such a way as could only be accessed in a single language, especially when, as I'll be examining here, the Quran states that the very existence of other languages is a mark of God's greatness. Let's start there with the 30th surah, chapter, of the Quran, ayah, verse 22. Another of his signs is the creation of the heavens and earth, and the diversity of your languages and colors. There truly are signs in this for those who know. This is a Meccan surah called the Byzantines, which references events of great political import in the contemporary world of the Quran by way of establishing the foundations of Islam, in a time before that in which the early Muslims would fight a war for their beliefs. We see here the claim that the diversity of human language serves God's purpose. For that reason, it would be senseless to limit true understanding of God's word to a single language unless God were incapable of doing otherwise, and I doubt very much that the Quran ever makes that claim. Elsewhere, the Quran states the purpose behind this diversity of language and cultures, quoting, People... We created you all from a single man and a single woman and made you into races and tribes so that you should get to know one another. That's uh, chapter 49, verse 13. So we have a basis, at least, for cultural pluralism. What about a religious one? Returning to the text, verse 262 states, The Muslim believers, the Jews, the Christians, and the Sabians, all those who believe in God in the last day and do good, will have their rewards with the Lord. No fear for them, nor will they grieve. The notes to this verse in my copy of the Quran state that the Sabians were a monotheistic religious community. According to Wikipedia, their exact identity is unknown, but it is thought that they were a mystical community of Jewish or Gnostic Christians, or possibly Mandians, Mandeism being a dualist religion resembling Gnostic Christianity. Mandeans still live in the world and are called Sabians by some, but the original Sabians are no longer extant. Given that the Quran is believed to be a text for all times and all places, it seems sensible to generalize from this commentary on the Sabians, as Sardar does. Quoting here, In contemporary times, I would argue, the Sabians represent all those with mystical tendencies who promote self-awareness of God and do good. End quote. I've written before of the influence of mystical traditions on my satanic thought, and as well on what I believe that it means to do good in a world where good is defined by the world's most morally destitute institutions. And in the, in the essay version of this, there are links there to those respective essays. Sardar also mentions chapter 22, verse 34. We appointed acts of devotion for every community, which Sardar interprets as referring to, quoting, symbolic ways of worshiping and adoring God, end quote. Or, as I would put it, 
symbolic frameworks for approaching and understanding the sacred, which is exactly what all religion is to me in the first place. This is to say, I believe that Islamic pluralism is inclusive even of Satanism. The Quran seems to expect that dialogue between religions is entirely natural and expected. The very brief 109th chapter seems to encourage not what I would call a mutual respect exactly, but at least a mutual understanding. Quoting here the entire chapter, say, Disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship. You do not worship what I worship. I will never worship what you worship. You will never worship what I worship. You have your religion, and I have mine. According to early commentators on the Quran, as mentioned in the preface to the above chapter, this was revealed to Muhammad in Mecca after the polytheists suggested that they would worship Muhammad's god for a year if he would worship their gods for a year. But again, we can generalize to what this would mean as a message to all people in all places and times, and in that sense I don't think it's at all ambiguous. In the second chapter is a verse called the Throne Verse, widely regarded as the most excellent in all of the Quran. I won't reproduce it here as it is not of direct relevance, except to say that it describes several of the qualities of God and that it is indeed quite poetically striking. What interests me more is that this central verse is immediately followed by an admonition, and I'm using Sardar's own translation here which draws from both Halim and Khalidi, quoting, There is no compulsion in religion. Truth stands out clear from error. Whoever rejects evil and believes in God has grasped the most trustworthy handhold that never breaks, for God is all-hearing, all-knowing. That's chapter 2, verse 256. Not, there should be no compulsion in religion, or there must be no compulsion in religion, or anything else but rather a direct statement about what religion is, one that I believe is fundamentally correct. True religion is never compelled. That which is compelled is not true religion. That there is an awareness of this fact is quite telling, especially in the context of the modern world in which Islam is often compelled by law and force. Take, for example, the Saudi Arabian laws against apostasy, which remains punishable by death. And as well, Sardar interprets evil from the Arabic word used at-tagut, and states that the evil ones are those who exceed their legitimate limits and arrogate powers, wealth, and lordship that do not belong to them, leading to arrogance and worship of other things beside God. Evil is interfering with, distorting, and turning to the wrong ends the free choices of free individuals. Which sounds very much like what I've been describing as the hegemon over the entire course of these writings. Just as much in Islam as in Christianity, and perhaps even more so, there are agents who appropriate the power that sacred texts have over people to their own ends, misrepresenting their content and distorting their meaning. Also presenting the no compulsion in religion idea is chapter 10, verse 99. Had your Lord willed, all the people on earth would have believed. So can you compel people to believe? No soul can believe except by God's will, and he brings disgrace on those who do not use their reason. End of quote. Which is to say, what is it that you think you're doing trying to force people to believe? If God had wanted it that way, then that's the way it would be. And I interpret that last clause to mean God does not look kindly on those who follow a faith only through abandonment of their rational faculties. I'll conclude with a discussion of the cave, the 18th surah of the Quran, which is an especially enigmatic one. It begins with the story of the sleepers of the cave, which God relates seemingly by way of correcting the more common version of the story, 
which we must then assume was commonplace in Mecca in the late 6th century. The details of the story are not of immediate relevance, nor are those of the other two stories presented in the chapter, one of which dealing with a meeting that Moses had with some unidentified person, and the other of which dealing with an individual called Dul Karnain, he of the two horns, a story which scholars believe originated in myths surrounding Alexander the Great. The true identity of Dul Karnain remains unknown for certain, but the Quran relates the story as if he were a familiar figure to the Meccans. Taken as a whole, the chapter appears to be situating Islam within the context of mythological narratives extant at the time of its revelation. The chapter ends with what may be my favorite verse in the Quran. Chapter 18, verse 109. Say, If the whole ocean were ink for writing the words of my Lord, it would run dry before those words were exhausted, even if we were to add another ocean to it. Which, given context, I take to mean not just those stories related here, but all the mythological narratives of all the religions that ever were or ever will be are the words of God. One of the solutions that Huntington offers to the clash of civilizations is that, quoting, People in all civilizations should search for and attempt to expand the values, institutions, and practices they have in common with peoples of other civilizations. Huntington is explicitly not arguing for global monoculturalism or local multiculturalism, and draws from Michael Walzer in describing moralities existing in a thick sense, extending deeply through a single culture, and a thin sense, extending more broadly across multiple cultures. Civilizations, Huntington says, should embrace the thick morality unique to their culture but also seek to clarify and expand the thin morality that is shared between civilizations. I think that this can and should be applied to religions as well, both in terms of understanding the theology of different religions and in terms of the social-cultural behaviors of the peoples of different religions. I don't believe that all religions are the same, and we should seek to appreciate each religion on its own terms. But there are nevertheless commonalities that we should seek out and explore. The Quran in particular, in stark contrast to how Islam is often practiced in the world, embraces that outlook. One thing I didn't get to talk about in the essay is something that Sardar talks about regarding Islam and pluralism. The Quran repeatedly states that only God knows the whole truth of things. I don't believe in Allah the same way that Muslims do, but I can nevertheless see this as reflecting the truth of the universe, which is that its ultimate truth is unknowable. The corollary to this is that all human religion is ultimately erroneous, at least in part. This reminds me of something that Nietzsche said. Uh, which I quoted in another essay. The Gay Science, section 110. Over immense periods of time, the intellect produced nothing but errors. A few of these proved to be useful and helped to preserve the species. Those who hit upon or inherited these had better luck in their struggle for themselves and their progeny. Thus, the strength of knowledge does not depend on its degree of truth, but on its age, on the degree to which it has been incorporated, on its character as a condition of life. I don't think that Nietzsche was by any means trying to disparage science in this. He presents himself through his writings as a rational thinker who is very much in favor of scientific inquiry. But like any good philosopher, he seeks to understand the scope and limitations of such inquiry, and comes to much the same conclusion that I have, which I have heard called the perspectivist position. Knowledge is never just known, but rather always known by someone. What follows from this is that, all other things being equal, no religion has a sound basis for criticizing other religions. 
Doing so would be claiming God's position and knowing the absolute truth of things. I say other things being equal, because when it actually comes to the manifestations of religion as practice and behavior, there may very well be a sound basis for criticism that might be approached from either a religious or rationalist basis. I say this as someone who is primarily approaching this entire field of study as both a religious person and a critic of religion, but I'm not saying that I know the absolute truth of things. I know what works as far as what is able to make accurate predictions about the way the world behaves, but I'm not claiming some religious truth that I'm clued in on and saying that everyone else is wrong. I'm just pointing out the inconsistencies and contradictions in people's actual beliefs and behavior. Coming up next Friday are two more episodes, one on a new piece I'm doing on the Book of Job from the Bible, and the other on my early essay, Satan the Accuser. I'm looking forward to getting those into your hands and ears. The essay on the Book of Job I'm especially excited about. I've just started on it today. Uh, I've been researching it over the last week, and I've uncovered some very exciting things. Finally, a Satanist's Poetry Corner. The raven-haired priestess sings of the dawn, and all return to sleep. The small, stringy blue jay who alighted on my shoulder told me a story of some newborn princeling. I was asleep in your arms again, remembering stories I had once heard. By the pale god was I shrift-given and told to wait for the higher kingdom. So long have I waited, and not once have I heard the gods truly speak even at least to acknowledge how mute it is that they have been under the roar of the earth movers covering over the mass graves. I wanted at the very least to console you. There was nothing I could say. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Ave Sedanos. <laughs>